Hello. Welcome to episode three of Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. In this episode, I speak with Veronica Lopez from DigitalOcean. I had a great time talking to Veronica about her background, which is quite a bit different than mine. She grew up in Mexico, and her entry point into programming was writing physics simulations. We also talked about how she got involved with Kubernetes when she worked at CoreOS. We'll go to that interview in just a minute. On a personal note, I've had some things happen since the last episode. I started a new job as a senior developer advocate at a company called Fire Hydrant, which has been great. And like everyone else, I've been struggling some with navigating this reality that we're currently in. I recorded this episode a few weeks ago, and honestly, it took me a while to find the motivation to edit it. But I will be continuing with the podcast. I have my next guest lined up and some more folks to talk to down the road. If you enjoy this episode and you're in a position to help others, I'd like to ask you a favor. Please consider making a donation to your local food bank. Keeping as many people fed as possible is critical right now. If you're in the U.S. and you're not sure where your nearest food bank is, I'll link to a locator in the show notes. Any donation helps. And if you need food, please use their services. We all need help sometimes, and you're not alone. Thanks a lot for listening. Let's go now to the interview with Veronica. All right, I'm here today with Veronica Lopez from DigitalOcean. Uh, thanks so much for hopping on, Veronica. Hi, I'm so, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it is uh, it is a very weird time uh, right now to be recording a podcast, and I, I think that it's a little bit of a welcome distraction, at least for me. Yeah, no, for me, it's the same. Honestly, yeah. there are some people that, like, in the middle of chaos, they like to chill and not think of anything, but I'm not that type of person. And I think yeah. that's great. But for me, it just doesn't work because my mind starts getting very dark very soon. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah, no, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. So um, just to start off with, uh, how did you get interested in computing and math and things like that in the first place? Um, so it is not to brag at all. It actually was like a bad thing growing up, but like <laughs> I have always been good at math. Uh, but for no particular reason, I was not the whiz kid, but it was always very natural to me. Sure. I think that is because both of my parents are very good at math. Like my mom was like really good at um, mental calculations, stuff like that. And my dad uh, is very good at physics and stuff like that. So I guess that even though they never raised me as a whiz kid or stuff like that, I the fact of seeing both of them being good at math naturally without a lot of overhead, without complaining about like, oh, math again. You know, it was like <laughs> very natural. So I don't know. Could be some genetics at work there. Yeah, I, I was going to say that. Like, I don't know how genetics play there, but I I also think it was a lot on the attitude side, like that there was never yeah. this fear uh, around math and all these things. So that said, I, growing up, I always wanted to become a philosopher oh, or wow. an archaeologist, which I still love. 
But uh, long story short, at some point in high school, I think, cliche story, <laughs> um, <laughs> both my teachers in computers and physics were amazing, but like amazing. Like, but uh, even if my parents uh, were good at math, none of them do that for a living. <laughs> yeah. Like my dad a little bit, but um, none of my parents are physicists or scientists or, or computer scientists. So I didn't have any role models on computing. And yeah. I'm from Mexico. I'm from Mexico City, which is definitely not a tech hub. <laughs> so I didn't have any role models on, on computing or software engineer um, that I could look up to in terms of like, oh, I can work at Google or, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. So the only few software engineers that I knew back in the day had very boring jobs, <laughs> so, you know, like almost like actuar actuary with, with some oh, computing, yeah. but which is great, but it's definitely not what I like. So I decided to pursue physics because I was like, I'm good in math. Um, it sort of made sense. And you can like use computers for different things. Uh, but I, I didn't really know how how it could be, how amazing it could be to pursue computers alone. And it wasn't until I was already in physics that I discovered all the things you could do with a computer in terms of like, uh, as, a, as a scientist, as a physicist, but using computational physicists, like let's say, let's, yeah. let's call it like that. Like all the way from simulations up to quantum computing and things like that. And I was like amazed or optics. A lot, a lot of very interesting things that I had no idea that you could do. So when I was already there, I started working in different small labs uh, doing simulations uh, for different types of scientists, like mostly biologists, uh, a little bit of physics. Um, and these simulations uh, were done, are still done, some of them in Fortran, mm -hmm. Fortran 77, because they follow the philosophy of like, if it works, don't break it. <laughs> like, if there is no need to to update it or refactor it, it's fine. But like the the space of the availability of libraries and resources started getting more popular with Python. Yeah. So uh, there weren't many additional or new modern libraries with Fortran. So a lot of scientists started migrating. So that was basically my my first job. <laughs> And programming, translating uh, Fortran 77 code into Python, which, uh, by the way, is very different from software engineering. Uh, yeah. Writing simulations, you just have to focus on getting the job done right. You don't, they don't care about like how quick it is or how many resources you're using. Um, it's a completely different approach and it doesn't matter how long you you take as long as it is as exact as possible because those simulations are usually like the step before conducting the actual experiment that many times like in real life not a simulation which many times is like uh, either very expensive or with very limited resources so simulations are there to and not, not just for this reason but many times simulations are there for practicing let's say before doing the the actual shot so oh, gotcha yeah or because yeah maybe the experiments are use very expensive material or 
or in case of biology, like you cannot be experimenting with people all the time like, right. unless it is absolutely necessary. And you might so, have a limited sample of biological material to, to yeah. experiment on. Yeah. 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 So the, uh, that's what I used to do for a little while and I enjoyed it a lot and I enjoyed math a lot. Like, honestly, I have always enjoyed that, that kind of things. And basically one thing, um, I was still in school um, yeah. when I did this. So it was like part-time. You were labs. studying physics in school? Or? Yeah. yeah. And then, so I I was basically a computational physicist like, in terms of job. But then one thing after the other um, started happening, and I ended up building uh, mobile apps with, with Android. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was like a very easy way for me, well, easy, quote unquote, way for me to get money because as a scientist, especially in a country like Mexico, uh, it is not very easy to to be successful. Uh, so, it, and the ones that are very successful, it takes them a lot of years uh, and they're brilliant and you have to be like very, very outstanding. and. As I said, I was good, but I was never like really this whiz kid, this stereotype. <laughs> I just enjoyed it. Um, sure. Yeah, so I I started seeing that with being like a software engineer was like making more sense to for me and my goals and my practical goals than uh, staying on the physics track and just following the academic path and wait five more years for it. I don't know, for masters or like yeah. five more years for a PhD and like uh, be begging for grants and stuff like that. So uh, I think that you have to have a lot of passion for that. And maybe that will be my passion project like in the future <laughs> once I'm done with computers because I really, really like physics. I really do. But in terms of like making a living and stuff like that, it was more practical for me to pursue things as a computer scientist. And there are so many things that you can do that even uh, like my goal just to finish this is like at some point being able to go back to to science uh, itself in research, but Mm -hmm. as a software engineer, like without having to go through the traditional path. So yeah, yeah, and I've learned a lot of things. I was a theater major in college, so you don't oh, need wow. to convince me that <laughs> you're more practical, that, that working in software is maybe a better way to make a living than what you study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And how did you get started working with uh, Kubernetes itself? Hmm. So I don't remember the exact moment where I started getting interested in first distributed systems, but uh, within computing and software engineering. Uh, As I said, I started with mobile development. And then one thing after the other brought me to backend. And I I didn't follow the traditional path of like, you know, first learning CSS and JavaScript and all that. I have no skill in that. And it has like after many years, it it is very important. And I when I get to that point, I will struggle a lot. Um, Well, that said, um, the backend uh, I, I actually remember, but it's a very boring story. But after just focusing on like backend things, uh, general things, uh, one time I had to deal with a distributed system that I didn't know was called like that. <laughs> because mm-hmm. remember, I didn't go to school for computer science originally. 
Uh, so I didn't know these terms. So uh, yeah, I, I started looking at it. I knew I, yeah, with a friend, we researched uh, programming languages that were suitable for that system. And we ended up with Go and Elixir. And since we were trying to solve a problem like very, very fast, even though we liked Elixir better, uh, Go was um, more productive for us to like start and do it really quick with very little resources. And like Elixir is very powerful, but at the time we thought that it was very complicated to learn. Uh, so, and, and then find more people to help us. So Go was still like a little bit obscure back in the day because this was right before the first GoferCon actually. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and this again, this is in Mexico. So we started like looking for every single type of resource uh, about this new programming language called <laughs> Go. And we saw there was a conference and we convinced our boss to to go and he was like okay yeah go and basically like then again one thing after the other in the go community um took me to docker uh stuff like that so actually getting specifically into kubernetes was an accident because when i joined coreos um like some years ago i was originally hired or I started my process to be part of, I, I don't know this, which specific team, but it was, I, I, I was hired as a distributed systems engineer. Okay. okay. Like to do many general things. Uh, but uh, many different things aligned and most of the resources at the company were sent to, and with resources, I say money and people <laughs> were sent <laughs> to build Tectonic, our, our Kubernetes, uh, enterprise Kubernetes distribution. So I had no idea. I'm like, before that, I had only used Docker, Go. So I was basically familiar with the stack and distributed systems, of course. So I had like almost everything um, to, to be working on Kubernetes, but I had no experience. I, I knew it existed because Docker, etc. And yeah. um, but but I never worked at, at that scale. Uh, so that was interesting because when um, I had to deal with the visa process and it took like a little bit, of course. <laughs> and so uh, right after I joined, I like I actually joined like two months after I signed my contract. They were like, okay, so this is your team. You're going to you're going to do this in Kubernetes and stuff like that. And I was like, oh wow, <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> so that was my first a hands-on experience uh, and it wasn't hands-on in terms of like uh, using Kubernetes as a user. But right, right. I, You're an engineer trying to build tools around it. Yeah. That's so intense. that was really, really intense and really exciting. <laughs> but also like every time people like, uh, I don't know if they consider me a Kubernetes expert or, or knowledgeable person, uh, I'm like, Okay, maybe you perceive me like that because where I have worked at or the projects that I have been involved in, but I actually have very little experience actually implementing the tools. Like one thing is right. to build the fancy tool <laughs> and another one is to go out there and actually use it. So Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it, it has been a very interesting experience and then little by little I started getting more involved into a community for work reasons because of course you have to be very involved and 
also because Kubernetes is still like a, a work in progress. So um, back in the day, yeah, I mean, this was a few years ago, right? Yeah. So back in the day, um, we were all very like tight. Even if we were competitors or or things like that, uh, we would use each other's software or libraries or stuff like that because the space was very still very limited. Um, but it was really fun and. Um, I, in the beginning, I didn't like Kubernetes a lot because <laughs> <laughs> I used to think that it was like a very cheap way of building distributed systems with the background that I had. And I still have some opinions, but uh, I'm both When you positive. say it's a cheap way, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, like uh, like some sort of bootstrapping, uh, what a uh, uh, real uh, hands-on gotcha. distributed system should be and look like. For example, um, with uh, my, my favorite programming language in the world is Elixir, and, which is based in Erlang and the Beam. Uh, so, but not a lot of people adopted like and for in, in the wild. And I don't want to say anything controversial <laughs> that affects them <laughs> because I really love that community and it's like my favorite. I, in the world. I've known some some folks who are very, very passionate about Erlang and, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not it's not used nearly as much as, as most yeah. of the languages that you hear people talk about. Yeah, so I love that. And the virtual machine, the beam that powers all these uh, programming languages, uh, I think that Kubernetes and Borg and all these systems are like a uh, copy of, and I'm not saying intentionally, but like oh, sure, they, sure. they do like a lot of uh, features. They have a lot of features that Erlang had already solved way <laughs> back in the day. So like when I was introduced to Kubernetes, uh, and it was a crash course, like two weeks. Yeah. And yeah, like and, you're, you know, you're onboarding, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely. Like onboarded with fire. So yeah. um, I started seeing these concepts of uh, resiliency or uh, fault tolerance and all these things. And as an introduced as if they were novel concepts in the industry. And uh, now I understand that this was not the intention of like the creators, of course, sure, um, sure. but like for marketing purposes or, or even like uh, other people that were not involved in the conception of the project uh, used to market this or announce the Kubernetes, this project and all the baby projects around it as if they were like, I don't know, something like a breakthrough, something totally yeah. new. So that frustrated me a lot because I was like, dude, like this has happened <laughs> for a while. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I, when I started, you know, learning about it, that one of the things I noticed is that there were patterns that I was already using in my jobs, you know, that yeah. got built into Kubernetes. And that was one of the reasons why I liked it. I think that to me, a lot of the value there is that um, is the stand standardization, you know? Right. So, yeah. so like you're saying, you know, you could roll your own distributed system and probably do it better and potentially do something that works better for your specific organization. But then you've got to spend the time doing that when you could be using that to write your applications. 
Right. And also uh, on the downsides of doing that is that you have to either be or hire a, an expert that has a lot of experience, like very detailed uh, knowledge. And I think that something that Kubernetes does amazingly is democratizing the process of yeah. like the distributed system of Linux itself even. Um, I used to, uh, and another one of my backgrounds is Linux because for, that I should have mentioned before, because for all the simulations and stuff like that that I used to do way back in the day that I had no idea that I would end up in this space, we used Linux. Okay. Uh, for two reasons, because it, it is more like uh, it is less expensive in computing resources for those things. And, and second, because it was a third world country. So, sure. <laughs> so the machines that we had available at labs and all that were like super pimped machines, but like made out of parts of different machines in, to right. economize resources. So it was a great learning experience that I was not even aware of, but like it was, and I also studied in a public school, which is uh, like, to be honest, is the best way and the best place to study sciences and math in Mexico, but still it is public. So we didn't have like tons and tons of resources. So sure. uh, you, you had to become like at least decently good in Linux, even if you didn't have all the background and the kernel and stuff like that. So many years uh, forward, uh, <laughs> I met Linux, uh, sorry, Kubernetes. Yeah. And it was like, oh, I know this. <laughs> so like the <laughs> meme, you know, the Jurassic Park yeah. meme, like this is a Unix system. I, I know this. <laughs> so it was literally like that. And so, yeah, I started seeing some similarities and I actually like a lot that people from other backgrounds that used to do web or mobile as well, stuff like that, or even new people that came out of boot camps and stuff like that, uh, are discovering Linux thanks to Kubernetes, which always like makes my heart happy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is that is something I've really not thought about much, but that is probably some people's entry point into it at this point. Right. It's uh, it's funny for me. I was into Linux so so much longer before Kubernetes ever existed <laughs> yeah. that I don't think of it that way. But um, how do you think that your background? in physics impacts the way that you work as a software engineer, does it? A lot, but a lot, but the opposite. And so let me elaborate on this. Okay. So as I said, uh, first the, the approach, uh, when I first became a professional software engineer, not only having like little jobs here and there, uh, it was really hard for me to switch the approach because as I said, and scientific computing, your goal is to make it right, like to make it ex as exact as possible. Mm -hmm. And in software engineering, especially this day and age, you just want to ship, <laughs> like right. ship, 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 ship. And that is fine. That's okay. I understand it. But like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to submit something without it being like pristine <laughs> or like, no, 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 but this is not ready yet. And I, for, for a long time, I honestly never felt that my stuff was ready. And that was very frustrating. Oh, and, that's really interesting, but I can totally see how that would happen. Yeah. And not, I'm not even talking about imposter syndrome. No, no, no. It yeah. was just about like, no, this is not done. And people were like, why isn't it done? And I was like, why? 
Why do you want me to do this in two hours? It just doesn't right. make sense. Well, I mean, if you're going to run the simulation and it's going to take, you know, hours or days or yeah. whatever, you know, and a bunch of resources. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, of course, you want to put more effort into it up front and make sure that that it's working. Exactly. Um, I'm always interested by the the. Uh, the early space flight, you know, uh, NASA oh, yeah. And, yes. and the engineering they had to do because it's even more that way, right? Yeah. It's, it's you're yes. shooting this thing up in space <laughs> and you better better get it right before it takes off. And, yeah, you don't have like the chance to patch the bug or <laughs> yep. stuff like that. So that's on one hand. But on the other hand, on the positive side that really helped me and that maybe that's why I got super interested into uh, distributed systems to begin with, it's like, I, in my personal opinion, which I'm not saying is the complete truth, but like from my perspective, uh, distributed systems is still an area that is still very close to research. Uh, still, like at least all the professionals in distributed systems that I know are very connected to the papers or to journals or to uh, academics and stuff like that. And like, I think that there, there's still a lot of back and forth in, the, in this space. So not, not a lot of people would like that, but I love that. Like being able to, I remember, for example, at CoreOS, uh, to see the guys that, that builds etcd like sometimes their whole day was just to read a paper or right. like that was their work day or at least for three four hours that was their day that part of their day job because many of the things that they were building were totally either new or a very complex implementation so i really like that like the skill of investigating of like uh, setting reading a problem or or breaking up a problem into smaller pieces and to solve them in a scientific or the, the, the same way that you would solve a math problem. And yeah. I think that my mind works like that, like very logical, logically, you know, like if I have A and I have B, then it's C. <laughs> so um, very pattern matching. Uh, yeah. So I got that from science and it was really easy to implement it as a distributed systems engineer. Um, so I think that that's like a very direct connection. The part about papers is interesting to me because I'm somebody who I, I wasn't academic at all. You know, like I said, mm -hmm. I didn't really, you know, my background was, you know, I was a liberal arts major in college. I didn't even finish, you know. And so uh, sometimes I'm really intimidated by reading the more kind of scientific papers that you see around distributed systems, like picking up the raft paper or something yeah. like that, you know. Um, and, and so it is interesting to me that, like, you know, the fact that you've been in that that kind of headspace where you're looking at papers already probably made that, you know, very, very, um, a lot yes. easier for you. Oh yeah, definitely. Before joining, I, again, before joining CoreOS, my very first instinct was to read the raft paper. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that I understand everything all the time. That's the sure. point because like papers are like, in order to communicate, they're not books, they're in order to communicate new things. So it's it's normal that you don't understand any, every single thing because it's probably very new. So, and many times probably only the authors of that paper are the ones who know uh, exactly that, that topic. So that's a different approach to see a text, right? But even with that in mind, my first instinct was to go read 
Paxos again and read uh, Raft <laughs> again because that's how my brain was trained. Yeah, so yeah. that's that's something very valuable that I really like. Um, and that has made my life easier on the side of computing. Um, but I don't think it's a coincidence that I ended up, again, Kubernetes, distributed systems, all that, instead of, like, say, web development or sure. or another area, or data science that that is also very connected to physics, but I, that I didn't really like. Yeah. So you are actually my third guest out of three now that worked at CoreOS. Really? Um, oh my god! Yeah. So I had Stephen on and Duffy, and now you. And <laughs> and I'm wondering if there's something about that place, especially before the Red Hat acquisition. Like, what do you? Can you tell me like what it was to what it was like to work back work there back then? It was awesome. Uh, so actually, my friend Thor Hansen and I were the last uh, two engineers to be hired before the acquisition. Like we were there for like around seven months before the acquisition, and we were the last engineers to be hired. And we were immediately assimilated as family members. Like literally, like even if back in the day before we joined, um, it was like one of the hottest startups, not only in name and reputation, but also yeah. like the technology that was built there was very intense, very awesome. Uh, everybody was very friendly to everyone and like a lot of I don't know all, all the human beings there are family like we, we're still friends we even if we're distributed around the, the United States or even the world yeah. uh, every time that someone is in town we get together <laughs> and we, we we drank a lot <laughs> <laughs> but in a great way mm-hmm. um, I don't know I, I think that the people was really the DNA and also all, all the individuals that I worked with there were extremely extremely talented like uh, from the youngest to the oldest. Um, to be honest, like since it was San Francisco company, most of the engineers were very young. Yeah. But like it was amazing to see them. Particularly, I was in awe with the Ed City team because they are like, I don't know, and above the average of any engineering team that not only that I've met, but they had standards. Like, for example, I don't know if that's still the case, but I would guess it is, uh, that Etsy had more lines of testing code than actual working code. Oh, wow. Because they were like super strict about it, but in a very like interesting way, not in a, not in a scrum or agile way of like, everything has to be tested. No, no, no. It was like a way for them to to make sure that the product was really reliable because they were aware that a lot of people would use it. Um, so I don't know, I, I know I'm just ranting, but it was it was a really a really great company to work in. Um, and yeah. <laughs> That's great. I mean, everybody that I've met that, you know, worked there all do seem to be really great people. So it, yeah. it, I, I get the impression it would have been a, a really fun environment. I. I actually met Kelsey Hightower when he was yeah. still working there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, another idea that I have right now is that maybe this is just my theory. I'm not saying, again, that is the truth. But maybe since it was a very specialist startup, like 
people had to know things very specific about Linux and very specific about distributed systems, very mm -hmm. like down the rabbit hole. Um, and I'm not saying that to to brag or to sound obnoxious. Sure. What, what I'm trying to say is like, since it was so specialized, most of the people that worked there were very passionate about it um, yeah. because that kind of specialization is not normal or that's not what the average software engineer does. Uh, a lot of people there had a similar background to mine, not in terms of the exact path, but in terms of like they had never done a website before or they right. had never built like mainstream things. Like they were the type of nerds. Oh yeah, everything, everybody was a nerd there, like a very intense nerd. <laughs> so I also think- so were, you, were you like working on tooling around Kubernetes or were you contributing to upstream Kubernetes itself as well? Yeah, m myself, I didn't contribute to upstream Kubernetes back then because I was in charge. I, I, I did many different things there, but many different small things there. But uh, no, originally my team was building parts of Tectonic, uh, our former um, Kubernetes, enterprise Kubernetes distribution. Right. Uh, so my team specifically uh, used to work on the on the part of the rolling updates, the the upgrades, and and uh, we were called uh, core core services. <laughs> but okay. yeah, um, there was another team working on the actual installer because uh, for people. Um, listening to this that might have come to the Kubernetes space recently, where everything is a little bit fancier these days, uh, I want to remind them <laughs> that in the beginning, uh, like companies that made money out of Kubernetes, their only service was to go and install it for you because it was very, very hard to do it manually or to do it yourself. Like you literally had to, and I'm not, I'm not saying about, um, I'm not talking about hiring a, a consultant to implement all your Kubernetes strategy. No, mm -hmm. it was only for someone to go and install Kubernetes <laughs> into your stuff because it was a huge deal. So for a while, CoreOS was like that, like the installer itself, the software that like the wizard, let's say like the next, 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 next was the main product for, for a bit till we started getting more competition, so we started building Tectonic with like, it was, let's say, Kubernetes. This is a very oversimplified thing, so don't kill me. Sure. <laughs> so let's say that Tectonic was a like Kubernetes upstream, but with additional layers of things like Prometheus and uh, network additional network policies, stuff like that, that at this point, maybe some of them are, are implemented already in the core sure. upstream, but they weren't back in the day. So, yeah, and also like a better pricing for uh, enterprise solutions, stuff like that. So that's what I used to do. And then when we were acquired for, by Red Hat, um, I was part of the uh, operator framework team, which uh, long story short, is, is still it, it still is a, well, everybody or most people listening to this will be familiar with the concept of a Kubernetes operator, mm -hmm. uh, not in terms of a person, but in terms of a an automated um, thingy that makes things easier in Kubernetes. And you can build an operator for diff many different things to automate many different things. Uh, and so uh, before creating this team, uh, we had already built 
as a company. Uh, the etcd operator, the vault operator, many, many operators. And we thought that uh, CoreOS, even though many companies in the wild already had their own operators, there's a list in, in the main repo yeah. of like all the list of operators in the wild. Uh, we thought that us as a company had, yeah, that we had the most knowledge about how to create an operator, uh, even though we like the the previous ones were created by hand. So we came up with the idea to create a framework to spread this knowledge because we found out that sometimes when we needed to use an external operator, um, they wouldn't meet some requirements that were uh, needed by us. Different things. Uh, yeah, they could be silly or like important. So it was our humble but yet opinionated way to to share our knowledge with with the Kubernetes space on how to create your operator. So back in the day when I was still there and the whole team that I don't believe any of them are still at the company anymore after the acquisition. Uh, but back in the day, I. I think I never saw the beta version there. So it was <laughs> first in pre-alpha and then alpha, but people were using it. Um, and, and it was fun. It was great. I did a couple of demos around it. Um, and yeah, so that's basically what I did there before before departing. <laughs> cool. So I saw on your Twitter profile, you mentioned that you uh, are or were part of the CI Signal team. Yeah, uh, for this uh, cycle, I decided not to join for the 118, but I was for the 116 and 117, and it it was amazing. Um, probably I'll be back for 119, but let's see. Like mm -hmm. uh, my my team at Dio got a little bit understaffed, so and um, this this might be like uh, an additional piece of information for people that want to contribute. Like for example, me at my day job, I uh, after working at CoreOS and doing the type of work that I just described, I was a little bit burnt out of having to deal with all that space, all that community, all the politics, all that as a day job. Uh, so when I was looking for a new job, I was like, I need something different. <laughs> so, and also to learn something different. So even though there's a team, a Kubernetes team at DO, I didn't want to, I explicitly didn't want to join that one. Right. So, um, at work, uh, I I am allowed to do Kubernetes work, like for upstream things for the uh, for the CI signal team and stuff like that. But what I'm trying to say is that I don't get paid uh, for for my Kubernetes job, uh, gotcha. like uh, work, let's say, like as opposed to folks who work at VMware or Microsoft yeah. or Google, that their jobs are to be there so uh, if anyone feels that that you won't get that that opportunity or that you can only contribute to upstream if your work if you work at vmware or or, or a place like this that's wrong <laughs> i mean of course yeah. you have to be very organized and and be transparent about your priorities but it's definitely possible to do both like if you have a different kind of day job and you still want to contribute 
there are ways like if if you have any questions just reach out to me and i'll let you know how i how i do it uh so yeah so that's why i decided not on purpose not to participate in 118 because my my team was a bit understaffed and i was like no i'm going crazy yeah. if, I, if i do both uh especially can you, because can you tell us yeah. about what ci signal does yeah for folks so, who don't know yeah yeah so Basically, uh, it's a little bit ever changing, but basically uh, we go through the, the board of um, bugs or pending tasks and, and GitHub. Uh, everything is super well organized. So our job is to either fix the bugs ourselves if we are able to, and not only able in technical capacity, but mm -hmm. like uh, for people that are not very familiar with the upstream, how the upstream Kubernetes process works, like even though it is open source, not everyone has the permissions to commit into anything and everything whenever you want. Sure. No. Like since it's a huge project. You get invited um, to contribute to a specific yeah, repo. Exactly. So uh, if we are able to, to fix it ourselves uh, for permission reasons, we do it. If we're not, uh, what the next step is to try to diagnose as much as you can, like to reproduce it as much as you can, so that uh, usually the the bugs that we take care of are like very specific bugs that probably just one or two people in the world can fix for <laughs> permissions or for knowledge reasons. And these people are usually very very busy. So what we try to do is like to make their lives easier, like trying to reproduce the bug as much as possible and provide all the all the context so that when people report it, it's not just like, hey, this doesn't work. Right. I <laughs> so, got this error message or yeah, yeah. yeah. So that when they when we actually get the important people's attention, they already have the full context of what they have to solve. Or even we we try to triage it, like to say this bug might be dependent of another SIG, like, I don't know, SIG scheduling or SIG testing or SIG whatever. And we try to do the communications beforehand, like this is the situation, what do we need, what do we have, stuff like that. So doing, doing that kind of, of work, that's basically CI, CD, also helping a little bit with documentation, a lot of meetings. Uh, it's, it's pretty, pretty fun, and you get to learn a lot. <laughs> yeah, I was reading through some of the um, some of the documentation that's up on GitHub about what the team does, and I'll I'll go ahead and link to that stuff in the show notes. Um, it's interesting to me because I I'm almost positive that I read in there that they actually they recommended against people joining that team unless they're getting paid <laughs> to work on Kubernetes because it's so so intense. Right. Right. That 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 is, that was sort of my point uh, beforehand. Like to say that I I don't get paid to be there, but it, it's totally possible. They they advise that not as a gatekeeping thing. Oh sure. But the sure. opposite is like to avoid burning out, burning you out, or to at least for you to uh, to to know your limits and probably your manager won't be happy with that because also like we have to have meetings and these meetings are not like they have to accommodate most most of the team members so i usually just blocked that time in my work calendar and my manager was okay with that and my team was okay with that uh 
because even if I didn't get paid for that, I did have like the support for extra things because of the nature of my organization and open source and all that. So yeah, it's, it's sometimes it can be pretty intense, but sometimes it is like, like well, all the time is fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. And again, the humans there are amazing people, like literally the, the best of the best of the best. So, so, so talented. Like Stephen Augustus is like, he runs the world literally <laughs> I, I don't know how there's, he does there's it. a reason there's a reason i picked steven to be my first guest because right. that was that was my impression of him yeah 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 and everyone is so brilliant so helpful so so invested that it's really great like no one ever at least in my case no one ever made me feel dumb or or unwelcome um no, 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 like the spirit of the community is really, really helpful. Um, and that, that is great. It seems like a super welcoming community yeah. to me. That's, that's been my experience with it too. And I mean, the people that I know in that community, um, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who, uh, just to, to be honest and get this out there, I've never run Kubernetes in production either. You know, <laughs> like, like I've followed it for years now, you know, yeah. since I saw Kelsey talk about it probably about five years ago. And I've used it for some things as part of my job, but, but when I was in ops, I never, never ran it in production and I've never <laughs> contributed to it, you know? And so, uh, but, but these people are, you know, very welcoming to me and very, you know, very, uh, always super nice. And, and yeah, it, it just seems like a great community. Yeah, it is. It is. Sometimes and like sometimes it can be very intimidating code wise and because it still moves very fast. And I still think that even if the documentation teams are great, sometimes like the features are still moving so fast that sometimes the documentation doesn't cut it, you know, and and not for any bad reason, but just because you have to catch up all the time. So having people that had all the knowledge yet are always available for questions and help is invaluable. Like, yeah, really, really important, which I think makes a lot of sense given the popular adoption of the project. <laughs> yeah. Now you're, um, are you still writing Go? Yes. At Dio? Yeah, at Dio, uh, that's my main job uh, to write Go. Maintain a little bit of Ruby, but uh, <laughs> and because Dio used to be a Ruby first uh, company, but now mm-hmm. we're uh, Go first, and but we still have some things. Uh, my team is the API engineering team, and that used to be called API CLI, <laughs> but <laughs> we decided that API engineering sounded better (laughs) but Mm -hmm. we still take care of the cli tools and even though it doesn't have to do anything with kubernetes well a little bit because like let's say long story short uh, my team is like the gateway for the public face of all of our products because most of our customers connect with do through the api through the public api so it is the same api for all of our products like for the droplets on Kubernetes and stuff like that. So sometimes we have to interact with like the Kubernetes team for some tweaks here and there, yeah. but not a lot. Uh, but yeah, it's mostly Go, and but um, our 
and our clients, like the API clients for Go, Ruby, and we're planning to launch more uh, in, in the near future. But uh, the, these clients are open source, and we have a bunch of open source things on my team. And I think that my experience with Kubernetes was instrumental for my experience to, to be able to work right now and with open source tools that are like that have like eyes all yeah. over <laughs> all the attention how to manage it how to yeah everything so yeah even if it doesn't have to do anything with it 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 is very related to my previous experience and I'm having a lot of fun because as most developers, I had created APIs in the past, but never at that scale. You know? And sure. with all these products in mind, basically my previous APIs were just like basic web services. Yeah, so, yeah. And right now is the, the complete API with my amazing team that everyone is very friendly as well. I think that I always try to find really friendly people on purpose. Otherwise, it can be very complicated. It's a good thing to look for, I think, when you're when you're yeah. choosing a role. It's something I keep in mind as well, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What about? Um, have you worked with the the Go Kubernetes libraries a lot? Uh, not recently. Not recently. Okay. But for the same reasons, but but yeah, uh, I have friends that that are very invested in, in in that, but like not they're not Kubernetes committers. But they are very invested into that for like because they're passionate about it in a, yeah. in a user level, and uh, a little bit related to my comment on documentation. Like they 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 tend to say the same thing. Like the documentation doesn't always reflect the newest things, so they love to dive into the code to to learn how everything works and to hunt for panics and for error handling and all those yeah. kind of things. So the, I, I see that they are very, very happy about them. That's great. I met some of the folks on that team actually at, really? at KubeCon in San Diego. Yeah, they did uh, They did a talk about um, about the validation tool they had. Yeah. They built there for like upgrading clusters and checking to make sure that the configuration was going to work with the new version of Kubernetes. Whoa, um, that, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was a really great talk. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Um, yeah. I, I was super impressed with it just as as a technical talk. Like mm -hmm. it was it was super clear and really great demo, really, really well done. I'll, I'll link to that. But what I've seen of the Kubernetes product there is is really fantastic. Yes. Yeah. No, I think that all the things right now are very promising, very ambitious and very shiny, like very polished uh, yeah. from like compared to what we had back in the day, which I don't blame, of course, because it was back yeah. in the day. But right now, everything looks looks very interesting. That's fantastic. Um, if you were talking to someone who's just coming into the community, they're very new to Kubernetes, um, they're trying to learn it more in the ecosystem, is there any advice that you would give to those, those people? Um, persist, <laughs> don't be afraid <laughs> because it's even if you're, there are two types of new people, right? Like new people that had maybe a lot or a bit of experience in programming before. And there are the new people that are new in general, like new in programming or recently out of college or bootcamp or something like that. 
But either way, I think it's the same because Kubernetes can be really, really overwhelming. Like you go into the GitHub org and it is huge, like huge, huge, huge. And you see a lot of people like it is very crowded and like throwing comments and pull requests and <laughs> lots of tags. I don't know. I, I, I think that it can be very overwhelming. But uh, my first my first advice be like, don't get intimidated by it. It's a huge project and there are a lot of people contributing to it. But yeah. that also means that one, uh, there will be someone available to help. And two, that there is room for everyone. So like mm. uh, one, one of the great things about Kubernetes still being a work in progress is that you can literally help with anything, like even contributions to minor tweaks to documentation are extremely valuable. Like, and I'm not saying this in a condescending way. I'm, I'm saying yeah. this as a very important part. So if you want to be familiar, oh, one, one way to get familiar with how to contribute is actually with documentation or with processes things, because the process of contributing is not, as I said earlier, uh, it's not just sending your pull requests and they merge it and that's it. No, like there are some things that require some permissions and stuff like that. And, additional validations uh, so probably making a smaller contribution will teach you even if it's trivial for you uh, will teach you the process on how to do it on, on a bigger scale on a bigger scale um, try to to get involved as much as possible as much as your personal time and professional time allow it mm -hmm. but there is always something to do there there are many many things that you can contribute to either upstream or like in the community level writing tutorials writing i don't know uh, creating videos i think that it's a very good space where there is room for everyone like really 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 yeah um and that is great that's great um yeah, I, I know that there are issues that are tagged as good first issues. And I, yes. it seems like that's a, a good place for people to start. They seem to be pretty basic, easy things to do, you know, yeah. when you want to like learn what that process is. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, yeah, as I said, don't get uh, demotivated by because you think it's something small but the fact that it is there for you to take is because it is needed like yeah. to be done otherwise someone else could have done it but no it's there for you to take so <laughs> take advantage of that so i had i had asked for listener questions and like last time i got trolled a little bit um <laughs> so so steven augustus says uh one word basel <laughs> So this is really painful for us because uh, at CoreOS, then again, <laughs> um, so uh, also the the issue on, on the pronunciation is like people, some people say like basil <laughs> and some people say basil and everything in between. <laughs> so I am team basil, but only for no strong reasons. Gotcha. So yeah. Uh, when I started working on, on Tectonic, um, at some point, one of my responsibilities was to build, to fix something with Bazel that we used for testing. Like, it was something attached, like, for the sake of simplicity, like, every time, and again, I'm not getting into every single detail, so don't 
judge the oversimplification yeah. is like very attached to go test right so sometimes we would just need to run go test but we couldn't because basil was misbehaving so <laughs> and like many times like we went through rabbit holes on like oh yeah let, let me just fix this quick thing in basil to be able to run go test but it actually ended up taken like weeks and like right. it was really a rabbit hole very very painful because uh correct me if i'm wrong but uh for from the background that i that i that we saw is that basil obviously was not built with kubernetes in mind like it was built with other tools in mind i think it was java i don't know so for, that's my impression as well yeah yeah so there are many tools. They have libraries and, and API tools for many languages, but the most robust is for Java and I think Python. I don't know. But at some point, our former tech lead decided since there were not enough tools for Go and for the things that we needed to use it for, like he decided to to do it in Python and then write like a wrapper for it so that it could work with Go so that we could embed it into our Kubernetes version. I don't know, but like the function was really simple. Like, yeah. I don't know, it was something really simple, but the tool didn't allow us to to implement it just transparently. So a lot of things, we, we had to like bootstrap a lot, a lot of stuff that could have been done like very easily in like by hand or I don't know. Yeah. So, but we depended on Basil because Kubernetes uses it. So it was really painful. And I remember like the most painful moment was at some point where during sprint planning, my one of my tickets was to actually contribute to Basil to patch something that we needed. But then I went into the issue that was evergreen open because mm -hmm. nobody wanted to fix it or nobody could. And like the last contribution or the last conversation around that issue was like nine months before I I was assigned to do that. I was like, dude, if no one is fixing this, why do you think I will be able to do so, right? Like if, if no one has fixed this and is so visible and Kubernetes uses it, what makes you think that I will be able to solve it in two weeks? Like it doesn't make any sense. So it was really, really painful for us. So then uh yeah and, and my friend thor and i were suffering a lot with that so we hate, hate basil and kubernetes yeah it seems like steven is trying to get off of it is the impression that i'm under. yes oh my god when i saw i i literally saw that thread just waking up i am still one of those monsters that still that still uh keeps her phone in her bedroom i know that that is not <laughs> the trend but i do, I do that as well <laughs> so first thing when i wake up is i don't check my social media but i do check my email uh so i saw that thread and i was still like you know sleepy like my eyes have closed and I saw that email and I was like oh my god <laughs> this is Christmas <laughs> did you think you were still dreaming or yeah, a little bit honestly yes and I went through the whole discussion and I was like this cannot be happening this is awesome uh yeah and for a bit I had been trashing a little bit on go modules before because I was suffering a little bit at work with with go modules just normal things nothing like basil and when I saw the discussion on and deprecating Basil, and because 
Go modules will would actually be helpful for that. I was like, I regret everything that I ever said about Go modules. Go modules are great <laughs> and stuff like that. That's so really funny. Yeah, and I I thought like I, I shared the the thread and Thor and I were like, oh my god, we have to do this, and we we took it as a personal uh, task to be us the ones to deprecate it. But then we were like. Do we really hate it that much? <laughs> because to be able to deprecate it, it means that you have to go deep down to the rabbit hole. So. <laughs> there was uh, one other question from Diego Carrillo, I think it's pronounced. It's Diego JDCR. Um, I think there's a typo in here, but I think he's asking when you're doing a Kubernetes course or talk for people who are trying to survive the quarantine. Oh, so for the quarantine, maybe not that soon enough. <laughs> I am, fortunately, I am very fortunate to be very busy right now. Mm -hmm. And planning something like that takes time. And also, it is a, like, I don't know how to say, like, a resolution for mine, of mine to not do any talks in 2020. Mm, because okay. it was, like, taking a lot of time uh, and that is not my job I enjoy doing it but like it is like I, I it's starting getting very old for me to be traveling and preparing to talk and also like my day job so I decided not not to and I never was the best speaker in the room which was fine because it was never like my intention but yeah. it it was fun it was great for my career while, while I did it but for now I think that it just took a lot of space but i might i might uh do a small workshop training but i don't know it all depends on how everything evolves now because it it, it is supposed to be in argentina later this year but i don't know if that is going yeah. to happen anymore yeah, for sure yeah well if it does happen let me know and i'll i'll be glad to pass that on to folks and yeah. uh, I think that's all that I have to ask you about today. Um, is there anything else you want to add or do you want to no. talk about? No, no, no. Everything has been great. I am so grateful to be here. I'm grateful to be part of the Kubernetes community in the extent that I am. And right now, uh, people are amazing. Don't be afraid. And, yeah. All right. I will. Uh, I'll link to your Twitter. Oh, that that's one other question that I have for you. Is yeah. your Twitter is Marie Fibonacci? What what is? Can you tell me what that reference is? Yeah. Uh, so it's super super silly. So I I joined Twitter. I was early adopter, like thirteen years ago or something like that. And just because my friends had it, and I was like, oh yeah, let's create an account. And Veronica and all the similar things were taken. <laughs> And it and for me, I have so many followers and I tweet a lot because it used to be like a personal space, like my real life friends are there right. and we're all distributed. So that said, I didn't take it seriously back in the day. <laughs> so um, I have always been obsessed with uh, uh, Maria, the Blondie song. And okay. Yeah, and uh, I was sort of, um, this was back, back in the day. So um, I think we were learning to do some simulations with Fibonacci, which <laughs> was my favorite uh, number series back mm -hmm. in high school because this is super silly because they, <laughs> it was taught with bunnies because that's how bunnies get 
reproduce. Oh, I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah. So I had that like idea in my head and it was like cute. And I was doing simulations with Fibonacci at that time. And it was like, oh yeah, Maria Fibonacci. And that was it. And then many years later, I like, for the sake of being more professional, I tried to switch it to my name and people were pissed at me. They were like, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> so I had, like, no, bring it back. And well, now it's okay. probably published in a million yes. places and everything too. Yes. So. No, or like they were trying to at me in conversations and they were like, why did you go? And I was like, no, I am Veronica, whatever. And they were like, what What kind of username is that? It's so dumb. Go back to Maria Fibonacci. And I was like, okay, good. That's really funny. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I did this with Duffy last week too because I never knew where his where his Twitter handle came from. So this is uh, this is a thing I'm going to learn about people as we yes. know like, yes. the origin of their Twitter handles. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks again, Veronica. This was super fun. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. No. Thank you so much for having me, and congratulations on your podcast. Oh, thank you. Cube Cuddle was created and hosted by me, Rich Burrows. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at daybrighton.com. And thanks to Montplacer for our music. You can find more of his work at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>